I'll play you. Um, are we going to say our names? <laughs> yeah, let's say our names. I'm Brooke Aiello. And I'm Haley White. And we are? No, we're not dead. <laughs> we are Dead Folks, though, the podcast. And this is Dead Folks, the oh podcast. Oh, my God. We are live folks. Okay, Some I'm Brooke Aiello. I'm Haley White. And this is? Dead Folks! Yay! <laughs> Is it a snake in the grass? Is it a flower in the weeds? What does it take? What does it ask? What does it give? What does it need? What even is life? This week, what are we talking about, Brooke? We are talking about the losses of 2020 and processing those losses and sitting with those losses and trying not to drink those losses away because they never really float down alcohol lane. They always come rising back up. Memory wrote. Speaking of alcohol lane, <laughs> yeah. is there anything you want to tell our listeners today? I have drink two and a half cocktails. And by two and a half, do they know that that's because you don't think amaretto counts as its own full drink? Amaretto does not count. It is a liqueur and not a shot. What if I sang the whole thing and it would be like an hour of resuscitative opera sounds? How unpleasant do you think that would be? I think we should table that conversation and maybe try it in the future. All right. Um, you didn't have two and a half though. You had three and a half because you had a double and then you had mine and then you had the half of the amaretto. No, it, I had two and a half. I didn't have all of hers. Hers was mostly water. I had two and a half. It was not mostly water. I it had was two just and a half. Why a are we having, this is such a boring conversation <laughs> to have. I, I just want people to know that Brooke drank some coming into this, whether it was two and a half or three and a half and I did not. So that's where. Haley Soap, Brooke tips. <laughs> Okay, good. All right. All right. So for our conversation about 2020 griefs, yes. there are lots of different things, obviously, that people have felt in this year. And continue to feel. And continue yeah. to feel, and lots of them simultaneously. All at the same time. So we are reaching out to our friends to have them talk about various ways that they have been affected by the pandemic or the election or... Give them an opportunity to share with us the losses they've had. I think when the losses are so big and so final, like the number of deaths, it's really easy to say my loss doesn't matter. Oh yeah, but at least my uncle didn't die. At least my mom didn't die. At least, at least. And I think that you can at least yourself into an early grave. So we want to just open up our small platform to say, talk to me about your losses. Yeah. Booze? Booze, yeah. if you're out there, I want to hear about them. I can't hug you, but I can hug you with my eyeballs. <laughs> and our ear holes. And our ear holes. Okay. Well, speaking of friends and booze, uh huh. we do have a boo who is online with us right now. Uh -huh. When you said booze, I thought you meant like, glunk, 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 and I was like, what? Don't say that about Leah. She's sober. <laughs> booze as in like your boo i get it i get it yeah. now just okay. a little slow on the uptake that's all right we put it together we got there eventually let's introduce our friend leah dewey leah hello hello, oh, hello. Look, we are singing hello. leah says it's a good idea 
Yes, I really picked up that vibe you dropped for us, Brooke. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Uh oh. I hope. Is that a vote? No, I was musical episode. Inspired by the harmony that you guys had on your yay when you first did. It was absolutely beautiful. I loved it. Um, so Leah, tell us a little bit about yourself besides the fact that you are our friend and we love you. Uh so I think friend is a bit of an overstatement. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um <laughs> I so yeah I live in Ohio now I go to Ohio State I'm studying theater I'm getting my master's um ew did you hear I said my master's fucking the Midwest <laughs> accent I hate that <laughs> um I don't hate that I love the Midwest but that's not who I am <laughs> um I don't, I don't know. That's all I can say about myself right now is that I'm a student at Ohio. I also teach. I teach sometimes. Yeah. She's um, theater at Ohio State. Comes with teaching. Exactly. And she's exactly. a baddie who won a full scholarship over there. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. She's hella impressive. Obviously. True. Thank you. What is, do you have a specific loss that you want to, sh- like, share with us or use this as a space to claim as a rightful feeling of loss or where, where you at? Yeah, the biggest loss that I, well, I've had a couple losses this year. Um, And I, first of all, I just really want to say, Brooke, thank you for what you said earlier about like, you can say like, at least this didn't happen. At least this didn't happen. All that, like, that's so true. And it's, it's the whole conversation of like, you are allowed to feel sad about things, even if it's not the saddest thing on the planet, you know, so Thank you for giving people that permission, you know, because I think a lot of people, myself included, refuse ourselves that that right, you know, to just experience grief, even if it's incredibly minute compared to what other people are experiencing. But that being said, I was kind of talking to Haley a little bit earlier, and I've kind of had like a whole life shift because of the pandemic, because my whole thing going into grad school was I wanted to teach, specifically I want to teach college and I have to get a PhD to do that. And if for whatever reason I find out I don't wanna teach, I wanna work in the theater industry, you know, I wanna be a dramaturg or a playwright or I don't know, any of the things that I love doing in the theater industry and theater and academia are basically shuttered right now, you know, like it's so, well, theater as a whole, just not happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, Especially with that graduate school experience, which is so vital, I think. I mean, you could be, there are a million beautiful artists who never went to graduate school. That's not what I'm saying. But if you are in graduate school, the process of performing and mounting shows is so essential to your development. And I, I, I can only imagine how frustrating it must be to have all of that kind of tabled and alternatives put in you know well dealing with your students too I bet as a teacher and not getting the face time and knowing how they're all struggling in their own ways yeah that's actually something I I dealt with a lot today specifically is um I just sort of had a uh like a reckoning I guess that how I'm teaching my students this semester is like so depressing you know because Uh I'm used to you know, doing workshops twice a week in front of my students. And I mean, you can't just read theater. You can't just read plays. You can't just talk about the Greeks and all that. And, and suddenly you have an appreciation for theater. You know, you really have to foster it in students, especially today with, 
YouTube and all these TV shows and, and movie, like there's so much competing with theater today, you know? And so we have to do a, a bit more work to get our students interested in it. And I love it. You know, I love at the end of semester when students are like, wow, I really didn't think I would want to see plays after this, but you talked about Hamilton so much. I can't wait to see it. And I'm like, oh, are we all waiting to see Hamilton? Right. Uh, well, now we can't because of Disney Plus, but I couldn't make that joke earlier. <laughs> But I, I don't know, I was, so what I do with my, with my students is they, their weekly assignments, I try to give like really good feedback, but written feedback is just so stale, you know, and it's so, it's just not personal, you know, and, and I really and want to be. so taxing. It's so, it's so taxing. And like, it's such a, I mean, it will, le leaving written feedback will mm -hmm. eat up an entire day for a single class. Yeah. Even, yeah. even if you're not eloquent, like this bitch, pointing at myself. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's double work because if I were doing this like on a paper in a regular class, I could say stuff and then be like, talk to me later, like talk to me after class, you know? Mm -hmm. But now I don't have that luxury. And I could say, come to my office hours, schedule a Zoom call, but there's not that... I am going to see you twice a week, so you have to talk to me kind of thing, you know, which sounds bad. I'm not trying to force my students <laughs> to talk to me, but I just want to know my students and I don't know them, you know, I, I watch their videos every week, but I don't know them. And that makes me sad because I don't know how to be a good teacher if I don't know who I'm teaching. Yeah. And that's like a huge part of the identity that I'm growing into as an educator is I teach for my students. I don't teach for the university, if that, if that makes yeah, sense. For the course or whatever, it just depends. Yeah. Do you feel like, because you've kind of got the worst of both worlds where you're a student and a teacher right now, mm. which, which is harder? Is one of them harder or are they both equally hard? I think being a student, at least in my circumstances, I obviously can't speak for all students. I think it's a lot easier but I think that's very specifically because I'm in grad school, you know, grad classes in the humanities. I don't think this is the same for like the acting MFAs, you know, or the design MFAs, but in the, the history and theory section of theater, I just go to seminars for my classes, you know, and, and we just read and talk and that's all we do and write papers, you know, but that's all very independent. So I mean, I, the only difference for me is I, I can't go to the library or I can't go to my favorite coffee shop, you know, which sucks, but I like being home, so I'm not complaining about it, you know. But a lot of my students, I, um, I've heard from them that teachers are like piling on the work to compensate for not being able to do like activities in class, you know, like my roommate, my roommate's an undergrad at OSU, and she said, that one professor is making them go to class three times a week, as well as meet with partner. It's her Spanish class. So like they have to like practice Spanish outside of class. And so they have to meet with a partner twice a week. And then they also have assignments twice a week. And it's like, how are you supposed to do that when that's one class? And usually For undergrads take like four or five that's unit, unit class. I mean, yeah. That makes me crazy is there's really clear guidelines for that. A three unit class should be a total of 90 hours, including the in class work. 
So if you're going to meet regular time, I don't meet regular times with my students. I meet as needed. But if you're going to continue to meet with them, you can't give them it. I mean, you're already at 90 hours. That's including the reading. Mm -hmm. You know, it's supposed to be including the homework, including the reading, including yeah. the coursework. And it seems to me like it's just so foolish. Like, how do you not just sit down and do that math? But do you think that it's somewhat like teachers who, like established teachers who are used to teaching a certain amount of curriculum every semester mm -hmm. that are just trying desperately to hold on to making sure they're still giving the same amount uh, you of know, quality and quantity that they would normally give? For me personally, I find myself assigning work. I hope I didn't just step on you, Leah. No, it's fine. Okay. For me personally, I find myself assigning homework when normally I would just give a lecture because I really feel like my Zoom lectures are inadequate to communicate ideas. So I assign better produced videos and reading and then reflection questions. And let me be 100% honest, if I thought my students would just watch the videos, read the stuff and think about it, I wouldn't assign the responses. But our education system has cudgeled these poor students over the head with needing grade outcomes that all they care yeah. about are the points they're going to get. And if it doesn't have a point amount attached to it, they won't do it. Yeah. And yeah. because they also have a Spanish class where every single thing has a point thing to it. So they have to very smartly, accurately, like appropriate their time to where it's going to a, a, I don't think appropriate is right, a, a portion their time to where they're going to have the most success and have a job and care for someone who's ailing and deal with the fact that their entire education just got hijacked, but they're still having the student loans. Mm -hmm. I yes. emphasize with the choice, but at the same time, I, you know, and I had a little bit of training over the summer. I took two classes. I was very lucky as an adjunct that I got paid for one of the class and the other class I got to take free to learn how to teach better online, but it's still not what I've been doing for the past decade. Right. You know, mm -hmm. you, you took who was someone who was essentially an established teacher. Right. And now I'm like a first year teacher. Leah knows more than me about teaching in this world. Did they give you well, any sort of instruction? Because you were all supposed to be completely um, in person, right, At the in the summer. And of course, mm -hmm. that kind of changed. Do you want to talk about that? So we, we got nothing, absolutely nothing provided to us, which is kind of baffling because Ohio State, when, so when we, everything first went online in March, um, it was, it went like, so the rest of the world went online while we were on our spring break. And so OSU was like, uh, we're going to add a week to spring break so we can figure things out. And they did not figure it out. In case yeah. I'm wondering. <laughs> right. And, and yeah, they, they gave us nothing. And then even I didn't get my teaching assignment for this semester until two weeks before I had to teach it. And that gives me no time to prepare, you know? Right. And for grad students, they usually just throw a syllabus at you and you're supposed to teach it. And in person, there's a lot of flexibility with how we teach it because they just give you a syllabus and like six scripts that you have to teach and I can choose whatever workshops I want to do, whatever uh, in-class activities, which I kind of curated over the course of, I don't know, 10 months, nine months. And now all of that's useless because I have no freedom in my course, in my course whatsoever. 
I just have to do these, these weekly videos that have already been codified and these written assignments, which are already codified. And oh, really? I've tried to do work to reform this course and the amount of pushback I have received, even though universally our department agrees that this course sucks because it's trying to do too much. It's trying to be dramaturgy. It's trying to be scene study. It's trying to be um, directing. It's trying to be, it's insane. And then the final project is they have to write and perform a play, which is really cool. It's a cool project, but it's so much to throw at these students, you right. know? That, that and, alone is a course. Just exactly. Right <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And so the online course version is all of that shifted online. And it doesn't translate very well. Yeah. And it's given me a lot of passion for, cur for like curriculum and teaching now because I'm like, I know that I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do what I want to do. I know I can do better than this, you know. Yeah. But I think you're exactly correct, Brooke, that there is a lot of grieving in this now because how I fell in love with teaching no longer exists. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it ever will exist, at least for the foreseeable future. When you say that, what do you mean? Because I am living for fall 2021, where I envision being in the classroom again. Am I living in a world that doesn't exist? Maybe we'll be in the classroom, but we'll all be wearing masks. There's still hopefully gonna be protocols for like safety and cleaning and all that. But I, I'm thinking like certain activities that I love to do are like, debate questions where we all get up on our feet and we walk around the room and like this corner means yes, this corner means fuck no, this corner means I don't have an opinion yet and this corner means like I believe this convinced me otherwise, you know? Yeah. And making them run around. Or one of my most favorite activities that I do with my students is when we, it's the first time we talk about playwriting. And yeah, have you guys read um, Lynn Nottage, um, Intimate Apparel? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's based on, we do use this play. And so Lynn Nottage wrote that play by like, um, basing it off of old photos she found and she wanted to like write a history for her family based on these photos. And so I tell my students to bring in a photo of a family member and they write down, they spend five minutes writing down everything they can think of for this family member, even if it's not true, just like what is your family mythology? And then they crumple up that piece of paper and they throw it across the classroom and somebody picks it up and you have to keep going with that story. And so we do that like five or six times. And then I'm like, okay, do y'all love your story? Read it to the class. And they get really into it and it's really good writing. And that is the exercise we left off on last in March. Uh -huh. And I just wish, I wish we hadn't, I wish Corona hadn't happened because they were such good writers. I wish I could have seen what they would have written, you know? So when you think about the fact that teaching might not be what you wanted, what you loved about it for a long time, and you're looking at whether or not you can even get in a PhD program if they're even, you know, running, yeah. what, what are you thinking? Like, are you thinking that you want to start considering other options? Are you holding on to hope that there's a way to make this current version of teaching work for you? Like... I'm like, where, where are you finding your hope or resilience in that? I don't know. <laughs> I know. Because I, yeah, I mean, so I, I'm applying for PhD programs right now. And I had a list of like seven schools that I was applying to. And I checked back last month and four of them now are not accepting 
applicants. So that was scary to see, you know, and I did kind of have a little panic attack and I, I talked to my therapist about it and she was like, why are you so afraid of not going to a PhD program? Like, yes, yes, like that you want to get your PhD, you want to teach all of that. But just because you can't do it this year doesn't mean you can't do it, you right. know? And I was like, okay, true. Thank you, Terry, for bringing me back to reality. <laughs> but I kind of had a talk with her of like, I have been in academia so long, or rather my identity has been attached to academia for so long that I very truly don't know what I'll do if I don't have it. I you know, that. that's why I think I maybe Aaliyah gap here before she goes and gets her PhD is the way to go because yeah. maybe you want to know like maybe that's who you are outside you want to know before you apply for your PhD program you know the best thing that happened to me was that I lived a life and had a couple years really figuring out what I wanted before I went to graduate school and, and yeah. then you know you know you know why you're there in a way that's clearer so maybe the gap year won't hurt you I, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I waited in the sense that I feel like I went to grad school, like at the right time for me, but there were also so many years of going, what, of just flailing about and not having any answers. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't recommend for anyone. I guess not, you know, <laughs> okay. I hear what you're saying, but I, I really feel like I benefited from the flail. Yeah. I, I feel like I really benefited. I mean, me flailing around is why I produced Miss Julie for myself. The memory of that reminded me like, oh, hey, I can always produce and play for myself that no one wants to see. Like I have that possibility. Yeah. And I would never have found that had I not needed to just like flail around and be like, well, fuck me. Now what am I going to do with my life? It can't be substitute teaching and crying, yeah. which is what I have been doing. I mean, it's very different than my current life when I adjunct teach and cry now. Oh my God. Do you think if you were at a school that allowed more flexibility with the curriculum, but it was virtual, that that, that would work for you, you think? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I actually, so it's not all the curriculum in my department that's really rigid. It's just this course specifically because it's our, our largest outward facing course. But I put in a bid to teach a different course so that way I would have more flexibility and they denied it. So that's it. Well, I mean, and I'm so scared too because every every institution I know of is looking at giant cuts. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just I'm low man on the totem pole. I well, that's the thing. I think everybody is scared because everybody, it's like they either their jobs have already been cut or greatly impacted and altered or yeah. the potential for it that's my sister's wife um it's like this like where it comes close and goes far Ooh. away like over and over again in terms of like oh no we're probably gonna have to lay everybody off no i think you're okay no it looks like we're probably gonna have to lay off no no i think we can save most people like like that kind of stress where it's just like the relief and then the tension and then the relief and the tension like that's not yeah any better than, than anything else no but and then i think too about i mean broadway's dark until oh, yeah I oh my god yeah and how many people that affects that's not just the actors oh that's affecting. no it, it affects so many you know i don't know i was talking to my friend nicole who lives in new york and she has a couple friends who um 
have been on Broadway. Somebody from her graduate program was nominated for a Tony, so she was talking with her about it. I forget her name. And she was saying, you know, I think that this is a horrible thing, but what I keep telling myself is there are a lot of things about the way theater worked and the way the New York City-centricness of theater was not helping theater as an art move forward. Yeah, that's um, very true. Absolutely. And there's a lot of real potential for this to change. I mean, you know, how many talented people are saying, fuck you, NYC, moving home because they have to, because there are literally no plays happening. You know, the art doesn't leave their souls just because they have to move home to Wisconsin. I, I think that, I think there might be some benefit in the long run to well, things being decentralized. That's the whole idea of n not just theater, but in general, when people are like, don't, let's not wish to go back to normal. Like normal wasn't yeah. normal. Let's, let's work on making things better. And that's just as true in the theater community as anywhere and else. the academic community as it is anywhere else. It just is also yeah. so incredibly terrifying. It's of hard. Course, yes. It's so, I'm just, you know, Heather was talking about decision fatigue. Mm, I, just have, mm -hmm. I just have terrified fatigue. Like I just spend so much time being scared. I'm just so tired of being scared anymore. That I that is a hundred. You always talk about capitalism. That is a hundred percent at work oh, to keep us fatigued from fighting back. hundred percent. I, I yeah. hear you. I hear you, but you know what? It's who it's made me empathize with, the ma the anti-maskers. Listen, they're idiots. Oh, I I don't follow you. Can you explain? I'm going to. They're idiots. They're dumb dumbs. I'm not saying that they're smart. I'm not saying they have a valid point. They're so sick and tired of feeling scared and unable to have any ownership over the feeling of fear and the feeling of sorrow and the feeling of loss that they're pushing back in the only way they see how like like a like a like a petulant small child can That's, i complicate that thought you Sorry, can complicate I, it as long as you complicate it via a cat related <laughs> analogy and i'm gonna say it as long as you use any other analogy but a cat so you choose, so, yeah. Oh, choose Speed Love right now. <laughs> How about I, I don't use an analogy at all? How would that Ooh. make you speed up? Um, I, I mean, I, I disagree with you, Brooke. I don't think it's coming from a place of tired, tired of being scared because the people who are anti-maskers are very often extremely privileged white people. I don't think they are scared usually. I think this is a moment when they are scared and they don't know how to how to deal with it because they're not used to that feeling. They work in tandem with the Protestant work ethic that this country is founded on, you know, they work hard, they shouldn't have to to feel the consequences of other people's actions and they shouldn't have to feel like they have to do anything to provide extra to this society that they already do by being themselves, yeah. successful white people. I mean, I hear what you're saying, and I see the logic behind it. I just feel like, listen, I just want to also say, I'm not defending them at all. I think that the people who don't wear masks are trash people, period, paragraph, and a statement. All I'm saying is, I think it does come from a place of fear. I think their capitalism has convinced them that everybody under them is trying to take what they have. 
everybody everyone's trying oh. to take 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 from them and so they do live in a place where they are constantly afraid that somebody below them quote unquote in the pecking order is going to take from them yeah you're both saying the same thing essentially i think it's just that they're afraid but it's because they've been taught to fear the wrong people and the wrong things like yeah. they're afraid yeah. that they're not going to get their slice of the american dream and that they're closer to potentially being Jeff Bezos and they are to being homeless when the reality is they're one, you know, bad car problem away from being off the streets and, and, they, and they've been taught to fear the homeless. Yeah. And the saddest part is the American pie in its truth. And this is why I'm not leaving in November, no matter what happens. I believe the American pie in its truth at its root is big enough for everybody to get a really good, comfortable slice. I don't know. See, this is where my, what I'm worried about. If you listen to 1619 or I any, of, to it. okay. Do you, the episode where they're talking about how they were, there were originally talks to like get rid of slavery and deal with that then and there. And they knew they couldn't, that they knew that their plan would not work without it. I hear what you're saying. I'm saying we're all evolving constantly. And as a people, as a bountiful nation, we have within us an unending potential for generosity and good. And if we can figure out how to break open some of the things that capitalism has taught us are, are restricted, are finite, and realize that they're only finite because of Jeff, <laughs> all of our nation goes to Jeff. Uh, that we can as a people come together i mean look at look at those there's been so many times in america where we have as a people stepped forward and made changes for the better and i think that we can do it again we just need to get yeah well i that's a very lovely thought i just if there is a day where there are more people like that than who are able to be easily controlled and feared sure but I, I just, I don't know. I don't know. But that's why I can't leave because I don't want to have given up. Yeah. Um, Leo, what else in terms of this year besides teaching and having school and, you know, your life plans? Yeah. What, <laughs> yeah. what is about totally rewriting your life script has made you feel <laughs> No, I just mean what else. I, it's all interconnected. But I'm sure there's other things at the forefront of what you're carrying this year. Um, or in general, I don't know. I wrote, I think she put her on the spot. Like, she just really already opened up a lot. Now you're like, no, oh. I mean, like, well, a good thing that came out of it, a good thing that came out of it, silver lining. I'll take that. I'll take a silver lining. Is say both actual silver lemon lining and metaphorical silver lining. Continue. Okay, great. <laughs> um, no, my whole my my thesis project, which is going to be carried into the PhD if I go to one. Um, I never would have found it had it not been for um, COVID and the civil rights movement that's been researched over the summer and theaters more or less lack of response to either of those, you know. Yeah, so my research project is analyzing the historical precedents for the We See White American Theater BIPOC list of demands for white American theater. And it's, I mean, it's, it's changed my life. You know, I know that's a little bit cliche to say, but I, I really found my footing 
as a historian and, under, and as a researcher. I, I learned that my passion is in theater and activism and where they intersect and where artists can use theater as a political tool and also where artists can remove themselves from the theater as a political tactic. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just really fascinating. I actually coined a term and my advisor is really proud of me for doing oh, that. Shakespeare. Uh, we're excited over here. Yes. We're not your advisor, we're just your fan club. What did you, you, what's your term? So it's called inward facing theater activism, which are words that already exist, of course, but um, the context more so is like, so like we see you Watt and, and did you guys see the, the theater's not speaking out list that came out over the summer? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Theater Not Speaking Out list that we see you watch, there's a, a coalition called the Asian American Performers Action Coalition. Uh -huh. So all of these groups are doing activist work that pertains specifically to the theater industry itself, not to like other political things happening in the world. Mm -hmm. And that is not studied really at all because people don't like to look inward usually, you know? And so there's a lot that's been written about theater activism, about, you know, um, like the reading of the Mueller report that John Lithgow was in, right. or like um, during the Iran war, there was like a project where 56 countries read Lysistrata at the same time to talk I, about that. We did one of those. Uh, see, there you go. And it's like, that's really cool. And it's great to, to constantly, uh, you know, reestablish how we are using theater to talk about society. Mm -hmm. But it's also a very easy way to hide the failures of the theater industry itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's what my research is about, is like saying, you know, people of color have been speaking up about their exclusion, their marginalization, their tokenization in theater for centuries. Yeah. And very few are codifying that and adding that to the archival record. And that's like a huge way of excluding people from history, you know? Oh, and making me so excited to be alive right now. Oh, yeah. I want to kiss your face. <laughs> that is very cool because it's like, yes. it's, it's new too. Yeah. Like you're creating new knowledge. Oh, you're freaking little brain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm really excited about it. And I, I wouldn't have had that had it not been for the pandemic that unleashed yeah. all of the Pandora's box bullshit, you yeah. know? Well, and stopped everything else well it goes back to what yeah. we said before about like like not wanting to go back to normal wanting to make things better so so i ask you what what does theater look like to you in a post-pandemic world at its best like in an ideal post-pandemic world is it similar in in practice but better in terms of you know inclusion or is it a completely different thing that we just haven't even created yet or what do you think um, I think it's probably a mix of the both. I think it's going to look a lot like regional theater that's happening around the country right now, where there's a lot of initiatives to support very specific, you know, ethnic goals within theater. I think it's going to be, hopefully, at least a lot more crowdfunded than from like institutions or from people like the Schuberts and the Nederlanders and all those I think, I think it'll just be, it'll be less gatekeepy, hopefully. Yes. Um, well, it's going to take a long time to get there, but that's what I hope for. Well, that's why you exist in the world, Leah. Yeah. Not to like put it on you, but like, you know, to put it on you. But we, <laughs> yeah, I, also hope, I hope that there is a lot 
because of all the talk that is happening about inclusion, I hope that there is more, and because the playing field has sort of been evened out in the sense that everybody has to pause, I'm hoping that the actual plays and writing um, that we get more voices and more opportunity. Although I'm and scared because when you're, what you're seeing in a lot of regional theaters is like- A return to like- A return to the, just those safe, good old American kind of shows. And you're like, God, that's yeah. what the world needs right now. I think it's gonna be a little, I mean, if we judge theater based on like the history of theater based on normal, theater tends to be kind of reflection of an existing society. So it tends to lag behind. Like if you look at- yeah you know, realism in theater comes way after realism in art. Yeah. You know, yeah. if if you look at expressionism in theater, it's a couple, it, if you look at like, you know, Dionysus in 69, like that whole movement was about a decade. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. yeah. After, so I just think we, theater, because I think theater tends to be a mirror more than a, I don't know, laser. I don't understand that when I try to say, but you know, <laughs> it tends to be, reflective because it's a reflecting back so yeah. it's like an extra time to get i think it just takes an extra second often but that doesn't mean we lose hope it doesn't mean we stop making art that we think is i mean i've lost hope and i'm definitely going to take a nap but leah still seems to have a lot of energy so she'll she'll keep on plugging well up. let me provide you with a different metaphor perhaps Good. i think it was grotowski who said you know, theater is a laboratory and theater is a microscope through which we can experiment with society. So it's not necessarily predicated on needing a society to reflect from or to reflect onto, but rather a society that we can create anew through this like practice of life. I think that theater in its purest form is often that. I don't think that American no. theater has ever been that. However, well, I'm not saying it can't be. I'd much rather be a needle than a mirror. I also but like so, but so, once again, let me complicate that. Well, I don't think no. white American theater ever has been. Fair enough. But certainly black theater, Chicano theater, Asian American theater, certainly all of those have been. But they're just not talked about and they're not written about, you know? And produced. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and so much of it is is often framed around white centric like a proximity to whiteness which is another thing yeah kind of goes the way of the pre-pandemic world mm. you know yeah. yeah because it gets so complex when you're like even talking about shows and we right. had a conversation at one of the backyard readings that they've been doing in fresno is, is like you know when you're doing whether it's like BIPOC shows or shows about the LGBTQIA community, when, when there's like sad endings or something, like at what point are we gonna, what, at what point do we wanna just tell joyful stories, but then it's like you have to get to the joyful stories when, you know, so many of the stories are just about how, how, how they're othered by white society. Right. You know? And that's, but that's the thing the is like, in this speech, the Ground on Which I Stand by Augustine, um, his this speech sort of sparked conversations of race in American theater. And it, I mean, obviously they were happening before, but he like brought this to the national stage, right? Um, he says, he's talking about black theater specifically. He says, black theater has been happening since this country has existed. It is only now that you have started to pay attention to it. 
And I think you can also extend that to queer theater, to Chicano theater, to any other kind of theater. You know, there are those good stories, those fulfilling stories out there, but producers are not buying them because, right. well, okay, sorry to get intellectual, but in my poli-sci class, we're talking about this theory, it's called group positioning theory, where the position of the dominant group is dependent on the subjugation of the, the minority groups. Yeah. And so white American theater cannot thrive unless we have these depressing stories about queer people, about black people, about Asian people, because then we can look at Bye Bye Birdie as a fun time or about Hamilton as a fun, okay, Hamilton's a bad example. But you know what I'm saying, where it's like, then you think white people or white theater is the good theater and seeing theater about people of color is the bad theater because it, it doesn't fulfill you in the same ways, you know? I don't know, maybe. It makes me sad, makes what? me tired makes me mad but it's it's changing though look because the pandemic happened we are decentralizing it like brooke was saying and it's we're seeing now when we have the capacity to put our own works on stages when we don't have to depend on producers we don't have to depend on getting funding from all these institutions to put on a show that millions can see or hundreds of thousands can see whatever it's good work still. It's good work so that people really care about still, you know? Yeah. And it's just a matter of being given the space. And that's sort of what this pandemic did, you yeah. know? Yeah, silver linings. One of the, th it evened out the playing field quite a bit. It shut down a lot of people with pockets, deep pockets, you know, they can't do anything more than we can do. Yeah. You know, when, when, when we're all stuck on Zoom, so. Well, one thing we ask people or that we've asked ourselves when when grief is hitting you hard what do you hang your hope on okay this is gonna sound conceited but <laughs> on myself oh, because i love you so hard i always bounce back you know and that's something i'm really proud of myself is i'm very adaptable and i find a way to make things work even when it's really hard and even if i'm not always out of it. I think that's that's sort of always in the back of my head and I think that's kind of why I do I do risky things sometimes because I know I'll be fine no matter how it turns out you know so I don't know that's me right that's there. a great answer that yeah. I, oh we... my friggin god I'm having <laughs> over here I love that answer so much yeah I think we both want to be you when we grow up I think we're <laughs> I, I have no hope of ever being you I just want to know you <laughs> <laughs> just so much well, I love you guys. that's like the best answer i it, love yes that. Yeah. It, it's so it's so cool to hear a powerful woman powerful intelligent beautiful woman know that about herself at such a young age like and also to feel like they can say it because i think that yeah. i think that even and like we're what a decade two decades older than you how old are you i don't know okay i'm 22 i'll be 23 in two weeks we're about two decades older than you and it's crazy but there's been an entire shift because it was not okay as a woman to even say you were good at anything <laughs> when you were 22 well and if you tried someone would make sure you know you weren't yeah like it was like oh <laughs> why are you so conceited but it's so awesome to oh hear oh my god i'm it. so excited in fact i just <laughs> all this shit where we're talking i want you to cut that because i want to end it <laughs> on what leah said because what leah said <laughs> chef kiss perfect <laughs> it's 
good stuff. And I think we should just end well, this episode right Well, I just think, right like, here. if you're yeah. already there, like, oh, just, like, you could run the world She's by the time you're our age. I know. It's going to be so I can't amazing. wait to see it. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to see what you do. <laughs> What you do, what you do with your griefs and your silver linings, and put them all together and make of them. It's gonna be yes. magic. It is. You're an impressive. Put into uh, hashtag how Leah fixes 2020. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. so if you could just get that vaccine done, that would be great. Yeah. Oh yeah. Let me work on that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Leah Bear. I'm so glad you called. Same. I well, you called me technically, but <laughs> yes, I love you guys. Love you. Thank you for talking to us. Yes. Now I'm gonna go hug some greyhounds. Oh, do it. I, Give us extra hugs. Yes. To the. Dog. I shall. Okay. I shall. Have a good night. night Bye. Love you, love you guys. <laughs> and bye to all our listeners may you have a good week and not stress too hard about everything good night good night oh i think you were going with uh-huh. uh and i was going with uh-huh. uh-huh okay good night bye is it a world is it a well is it a building or a bridge sometimes it's hard for me to tell what fucking structure you need